millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Just how concerned should we be in France over a spike in far-right violence after the murder of a young man in a rural village? What are the new international flight and train routes opening in France next year? And just how did the French end up with their crazy number system? These are just three of the many questions we will try to answer in this new episode of Talking France, a podcast produced by The Local and funded by our members. Thanks to all our listeners for joining us once again. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and joining me again is the team at The Local, editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and politics expert John Litchfield. Emma, Jen and John, good to have you with us once again. Let's get straight on. France's Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin came out with a fairly alarming statement this week. He said, There is a mobilisation within the extreme right that would have us tip into civil war. The statement came in the aftermath of a violent incident in a rural French village that saw a young man stabbed to death. That murder prompted violent protests by far-right groups and uproar from politicians on the extreme right. It's also led to calls for calm from the French government and a bow to ban more extremist groups. Let's start at the beginning, Emma. What's caused this whole flare-up? Okay, so two weeks ago, there was a village party in a small place called Crépol. It's in the Drôme département of eastern France, about 80 kilometres from Grenoble. And during that party, a group of teenagers and young men who were not from the village turned up. There was some kind of altercation and during it, a 16-year-old boy from the village, who's been named only as Thomas, was fatally stabbed. Nine people are now in custody, charged with attempted murder and murder in an organised gang related to that incident. And that's really all that we know for certain at this stage. But as soon as it happened, this incident was kind of seized on by the far right. As I say, no one is very clear exactly how this altercation started, but several witnesses in the village said they heard anti white insults being shouted during the brawl. And that was kind of enough. Far-right politicians such as Marine Le Pen, her niece Marianne Maréchal and the pundit-turned-politician Eric Zemmour to all make sort of very inflammatory statements. They were all kind of playing on this theme of white people being unsafe in their own homes and a clash of civilizations. So the following weekend, around 100 extreme-right activists travelled to a town called Romain-sur-Isère, which is close to the village, and it's reportedly where the group who travelled to the village came from, although we don't actually know that and police have not confirmed it. But these 100 extreme activists turned up there. There were violent clashes with locals and police. French media have reported that the groups who identified themselves on social media as being part of that unrest were neo-Nazis. And six people are in custody over the violence in Romain-sur-Isère. Now, as might be expected, Emma, the French government ministers have spoken out and urged calm following these incidents. Are they right to be worried? Yeah, I mean, they they do seem pretty worried, both about the murder itself and the aftermath. The government spokesman, Olivier Verra, he's sort of been calling for calm. He's travelled to the region. He spent a few days there trying to meet people affected and then sort of lower the temperature. The interior minister, Gérard Damana, he's announced that he will seek a ban on three groups who were part of the weekend's violence, one of which has been identified as a group called Division Martel, which is a small group based in Paris, and their members have been implicated in several violent racist attacks, including including attacks on Morocco football supporters during the World Cup. 
Meanwhile, local authorities in Lille, uh, they banned a planned demonstration of the ultra-right that was called for Wednesday because, again, they were sort of worried that there would be violence there. But I think the main reason that the government are worried is that we've seen quite a few cases recently involving what they call in France the ultra-droite, the, the ultra-right. That's to say people who don't just vote far-right parties at election time, they kind of get involved in violent direct actions such as street fighting, attacks, or even terrorist plots in some cases. I mean, just quickly, when Darmanin talks about banning these groups, what does that mean? Well, I mean, it's a ban on the on the group forming, on the meeting. It would make being a member of that group illegal. And it, actually, this has happened to quite a few groups in recent years, most of them on the on the far right, but some of them would be um, extremist Islamist organisations as well. And you mentioned some previous cases involving far right violence. Just remind us of a couple of those, Emma. Yeah, you might remember uh, last year around Christmas time, there was an attack on a Kurdish community centre in Paris by a gunman who killed three people and he later told police that his motives were racist. During the World Cup, groups of masked extreme right people travelled to the Champs-Élysées with the intention of attacking Moroccan football fans and that seemed to have been quite an organised thing that was organised on social media in advance. And there was also a group of ultra-right activists who tried to put in place a plot to kill President Emmanuel Macron. It was a bit of an inept plot, but it was a plot nonetheless. Overall, there are estimated to be 3,300 people in France who belong to extreme-right groups of whom around 1,300 are on a police watch list. So, I mean, obviously this is a very small number of people and the vast, vast majority of French people do not support or condone this kind of behaviour or thinking. Even people who might vote for Marine Le Pen at election time, that's a very different thing. But, I mean, I think the, even these small numbers are still enough to worry police and counterterrorism experts, especially as these groups, they tend to be small, they don't really have a connection with other organisations such as political parties, and they're organised online, which makes them quite hard to monitor. Mm, Let's bring in John Litchfield, who joins us from Normandy. John, you've written your weekly column for the local France on this subject. What shocked you about this incident was not just the death of the young man, but also the reaction to it among politicians and the media. Yeah, I mean, it's a horrible incident. I mean, you know, and in a sense, what is most shocking about it or kind of disturbing about it is where it happened, you know, a small town or at least a village on the edge of a small town of 30,000 people. Uh, it isn't, you know, the sort of area where you expect this kind of allegedly racial instance to take place where gangs of multiracial use from the inner suburbs of cities running rampage and so on. It is something happening in almost rural France, which is one of the reasons why it's been exploited so much by the right. I I think the other thing that shocked me has been the polarisation of reactions to it. I mean, rather similarly with the riots in in the summer, it was not not possible to have a kind of balanced view on this subject, it seems, in the French media. Either you think this is the beginning of kind of racial violence across France with the sort of ravening hordes of of Muslims attacking rural France. This is kind of language that's being used by the the, uh, National Front, by the Rassemblement National, by Zemmour, Marion Maréchal, using that kind of language really inflammatory language. And then on the other side, or the sort of left or centre of French politics, people trying to play it down, pointing to racial incidents involving attacks on people of Muslim backgrounds to point out this is not, you know, not just on one side of of the game that this is happening. It's very difficult now to to say, it seems to say, that this actually was an incident which started as a banal fight at a, at a, a, a dance and grew very rapidly out of hand. I mean, it's become a an article of faith on the right side and not just the far right side of French politics that this was a kind of deliberate attack by a gang of kids of Arab origin but French-born on a, a white dance in a little village uh, on the edge of the town where they lived. This is not really what happened. 
and it was you know much more complex than that and the the prosecutors the police are saying it's more complex than that but that is not possible to say anymore it seems in the right wing side of the french media John, just in terms of the reaction of the government, even Interior Minister Gerald Damanin, he said that there is a mobilisation within the extreme right that would have us tip into civil war. Is he exaggerating or has the threat from the violent extreme right been growing in France in recent years? You know, I think it's growing. It's growing not just in France. You know, there's this horrible instance in Dublin, a city I know well the other day, which was not sort of organised far-right groups, but sort of mostly young young people who are influenced by far-right propaganda who, who sort of smashed up the centre of Dublin, basically, after after an incident involving a guy, an immigrant guy, uh, stabbing people outside of school. You know, so there is this kind of over sort of extreme reaction and to events, uh, not just in France. I don't think that the real danger or the real threat is from these uh, armed far-right groups who are pretty small. I mean, the attack, the, there's a group that attacked the town where the kids came from who were involved in this in this terrible fight down in, in the Drome near Valence, um, were from all over France. The guy that was, the, the, they, they attacked the, the estate where the kids come from on Saturday and then again on Sunday. One of them was badly beaten up by local people, and he came from Mayenne, which is just close to me here. And there are only about 100 of them. They were from all over France. They were sort of scattering of people who got together on what's called the fascist sphere, you know, the far right media on, on, the, uh, on the internet, and, and went armed with baseball bats and so on. But it wasn't as if it's a big movement. I think it's quite a small movement. But, you know, as I was saying earlier, I think that more worrying is the kind of tilt towards very extreme actual racist language on, on the part of the right-wing media, including parts of the right-wing media, which I won't name, which used to be fairly moderate, which now seem to talk in very much the same kind of language as, as the fascist sphere about anything involving Muslims and trans. The government has called for calm. John, do you see things calming down? Do you see incidents, kind of protests among far-right groups continuing? You know, the thing is that these incidents happen. If this had been a, an incident of dance where a white kid had got stabbed by another white kid, it would have been two paragraphs in the figure of it. I mean, it, it, these things do get blown out of hand. I'm not minimising it myself because I think it was, for the reasons I said before, a very disturbing incident for various reasons. But uh, there's bound to be other incidents of this kind. I mean, you know, people looking for problems, like the far-right people going into the Cité uh, looking for fights, but also, you know, the kind of incidents that happen in everyday life are going to be blown out of proportion. So, yes, I don't think it's likely that things will calm down. I think, you know, a lot of it's political, a lot of the calculation by Le Pen and Rassemblement National is political to create a kind of atmosphere of national uh, crisis, of uh, impending civil war, the rural white France is under attack from, from the sort of brown and black Bonnier. That is the message that she's been trying to put across. And this was, you know, this is a godsend opportunity for her and any other opportunity that comes, they will make the most of. Thanks, John. And a reminder that members of The Local can read much more from John online at thelocal.fr. Now, this flare-up of violence comes at a time when the French government is in the process of trying to get its much-talked-about immigration bill through Parliament. That bill has come under fire from both the left and the right. Just remind us again, Emma, about these planned immigration changes. Yeah, that bill is now being examined by MPs on the Law Committee in Parliament, and it'll start full debates in the Assemblée Nationale on December the 11th. But I do think it's worth reminding ourselves what's in it, because the French left have kind of denounced it as a lurch to the right by the government, the sort of implication being they're being put under pressure by Marine Le Pen and the far right. But actually, politicians on the right say that it's not 
not tough enough and they don't like the more left-wing elements such as an amnesty for undocumented workers. But honestly, what strikes me when I read this bill is just how little there is in it at all. This is not a radical piece of legislation um, in spite of the political controversy that it stirred. So what would it actually mean for people planning to move to France, Emma, or foreigners already living here like us? Okay, well, for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to assume that none of us in this room are undocumented workers, we're not radical Islamists, and we're not working to overthrow the French government. Mm, can I can I assume that? I'm not saying anything. <laughs> okay, well, leaving aside those parts of the bill, I think the thing that could really affect foreigners in France or those planning to move here are language tests for residency cards. At present, there is only a French test if you want to get French citizenship. There's no language test requirement for the carte de séjour, the residency card. Although sometimes the Office for Immigration and Integration can require you to take French lessons if your language skills really are non-existent. But the bill proposes that people would have to pass a test in order to get a long-term residency card. Uh, This usually happens after four or five years in France, depending on whether you're retired, working or studying. And although the bill doesn't contain it, what the Interior Ministry has said is that the level will be A1, level French. And this is quite basic French. On the international Delft scale, it's defined as... The most basic level at which a language is used called the discovery stage. At this stage, the learner can interact in a simple way. They can speak about themselves and their immediate environment. Okay, as someone who spent many years at discovery level French, Emma, I don't think that sounds too bad for a kind of language test. We're not talking about having to know the subjunctive, are we, or to know exactly when bonjour becomes bonsoir? Well, firstly, nobody knows when bonjour becomes bonsoir. Not even the French can explain that to you in a consistent way. And believe me, I've asked a lot of them. But moving on from my my own personal rant. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think that most people who move to France would be at that level after four or five years here. But nonetheless, I think it's just the idea of having to take an exam is stressful for many people, especially older people, but also people who've just kind of learnt their French on the hoof, as it were, who've not done formal studying, I think are a bit stressed about the idea of a written language Mm. test, which I can understand. Away from language tests, the original bill, the immigration law, also includes a requirement to agree to respect the values of the French Republic in order to get a residency card. And it makes it easier to expel people who've received a notice to quit the country. These are usually given to people who've committed a crime, but it can be used sometimes in case of serious immigration offences as well. And then we've also got a couple of Senate amendments, which may or may not make it into the final bill, which could affect foreigners living in France. One would make it harder to be joined by family members on a spouse visa or a vie privée residency residency card. You would need to live in France for 24 months before you can be joined by a family member. And the other one is increasing the qualifying period uh, to five years from six months at the moment before foreigners in France can access benefits like a housing allowance. This wouldn't affect unemployment if you lose your job, but it would affect like top up benefits like um, housing allowances or family benefits. And finally, the Senate amendments would make it harder for children who were born in France to non-French parents to get citizenship. But that is pretty much it. I mean, when you look around Europe, uh, particularly Sweden, for example, where the government has recently dramatically raised the income requirement for a work permit, really resulting in people sort of being faced to actually have to leave the country because they're not earning enough. The French bill is really not that radical by comparison. Mm. Any And just a final word, when is this French bill going to go through? Is it going to go through? Are the government going to have to use 49 to push it through again? Any idea on that? <laughs> Yeah, great great question. Uh, as I said, the debates start in the Assemblée Nationale uh, on the 11th of December. 
They're going to finish on either the end of December or early January. After that, it depends whether the government thinks they can get this bill through. Mm. They might be forced to withdraw it, which will be pretty humiliating for Macron because he said this is the flagship thing. If they don't think they can get it through, they can push it through using this Article 49.3 that you mentioned, as they have done with other bills. But Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne would then face a vote of no confidence Mm. if she does that, which she may or may not survive. So it's tense politically, but I think that it's political drama is really out of proportion to actually what's in it. There's a very non, non-controversial non bill that's causing a massive controversy for political reasons. Mm. OK, if listeners want to know more about the political drama or indeed what's in the immigration bill, we have plenty online at thelocal.fr. Thanks, Emma, and thanks, John. Let's move on from politics. A 75-year-old French woman named Monique Olivier is in the news this week in France. She's the former wife of French serial killer known as the Ogre of Ardennes, Michel Fourniret. He confessed to killing 12 people before his death in 2021. Monique herself is already serving a life sentence for complicity in his crimes. Jen, why is France once again talking about the Ogre of the Ardennes this week? Well, that's because his former wife, Monique Olivier, is on trial once again. So as you mentioned, she is already in prison serving a life sentence. That's because she has already been convicted twice so far for her role in Michel Fournier's murders. She is back in court this week to uncover her role in three more murders that Fournieret confessed to but was never tried for. So they date back to 1988, 1990, and 2003. The first one from 1988 is the murder of 18-year-old Marie-Angèle Domès. The second is the 1990 murder of the 20-year-old British woman, Joanna Parrish. She was in France teaching English at the time. And the third charge is for complicity in the 2003 disappearance of Estelle Musin, a nine-year-old girl whose body was never found. Now, these murders obviously bring back some horrific memories in France of this serial killer. What can you tell us about Michel Fourniret? He's from eastern France, or he was from eastern France, in the Ardennes area, which is not too far from the border with Belgium. Before the murders, he had already been jailed for a bunch of other crimes like child molestation, voyeurism, and rape. He and Monique met, actually, while he was in prison serving a sentence for rape. He had placed an ad in the paper for a pen pal, and she responded. They start chatting. And eventually they agree to this pact where she will help him hunt down virgins while he would agree to kill her ex-husband, which he never ended up doing. Shortly after he was let out of prison in 1987, he and Monique stalked the first victim, 17-year-old Isabelle Laville. Together they abducted her while she was walking home from school and then Fournieret raped and strangled her. Between 1988 and 2003, the ogre of the Ardennes abducted, raped, and murdered at least 11 more women and girls. The youngest was just nine years old, and he mostly worked in eastern France and Belgium. He was eventually caught after trying to kidnap a 13-year-old girl in Belgium in 2003, but she managed to escape, and she alerted authorities, and they ended up uh, interviewing the couple extensively. But eventually, it was Olivier who turned her husband in because she was afraid of getting a hefty prison sentence. Okay, this case, Jen, uh, that's taken years to solve, has reminded us that there are some other high-profile murders in France that have gone unsolved. They're kind of ingrained in people's memories and they still make headlines, front page news even, whenever there's a development. Remind us of a couple of them. Yeah, so we've picked a couple of the most perplexing. So the first is the Al-Hili murders. Basically, a British family of Iraqi origin was on holiday in France near Annecy in 2012 when they were gunned down on the road. The three adults, the father, mother, and grandmother, were killed with two gunshots each to the head. 
and a nearby cyclist was also shot and killed. Overall, there were 25 shots fired from a pre-World War II pistol. And luckily, the couple's two daughters, they managed to survive. Seven-year-old Zenob was injured and four-year-old Zena hid for eight hours behind her mother's legs in the car. Authorities actually still have no idea who committed the crime, and there have been some really wild theories as to who could have been behind it. So some people have guessed that foreign intelligence services were involved. Others have implicated a jealous brother. There was even a theory that the cyclist was the target all along um, due to his complicated love life. The running theory now is that it was probably a local person with a random or unknown motive. Mm, and a case that was made into a disturbing Netflix documentary was the murder of the toddler just known as Gregory. Yeah, it's about the four-year-old French boy and he was found drowned in a river in the Vosges in 1984. His family had been receiving these strange, anonymous, threatening notes, and law enforcement first charged the father's cousin with the murder due to a statement by his 15-year-old sister-in-law. He was eventually released after that statement was recanted, but Gregory's father, Jean-Marie, was feeling so frustrated with the lack of progress in the case, he ended up murdering his own cousin. Then law enforcement accused Gregory's mother, Christine, of killing her own son. And in 2017, the former judge, who was criticized a lot for his handling of the case, he died by suicide. So we still have no idea who killed little Gregory. Mm, and a name that almost everyone in France still knows, uh, Jen, is Xavier Dupont de Ligonnès. Just to explain why he still makes headlines. Yeah, so this is a pretty horrific story. Basically, five members of the minor aristocratic family, the Dupont de Ligonnet, were murdered in April 2011. Their bodies were found under the patio in their garden alongside the two family dogs. And the prime suspect is the father, Xavier. In the days leading up to the family's disappearance, he informed his wife Agnes's employer that she was sick and that she was planning to quit her job to move to the U.S. He also disenrolled the two youngest kids, Anne, who was 16 at the time, and Benoit, 13 at the time, from school. And eventually the neighbors got suspicious and they phoned the police who ended up finding the bodies. They found that the bodies had been drugged and then shot with a 22 long rifle. And that was the same type of weapon, actually, that Xavier uh, inherited from his father just a couple of weeks earlier. And I should also mention, we don't know for sure that it was Xavier who did it, but he was also heavily in debt at the time. And he'd made some incriminating statements the months before. The mystery, though, is that Xavier has been missing ever since. And some people believe that he may be dead or maybe he died by suicide. Over the years, police have received hundreds of tips of potential sightings of him. Uh, there was one that he was maybe in Scotland in 2019, but none have been verified. Mm, I remember the the one in Scotland. I mean, the French press were kind of reporting as though he'd basically been caught. I remember we, we got a French news alert, and this is what it said. It said, one of France's most wanted men has been arrested in Scotland eight years after vanishing without trace following the murder of his wife and four children. That was at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I remember getting that alert. And then by 1 p.m., a French man arrested at Glasgow Airport is not suspected murderer, Xavier Dupont de Ligonnès, according to the results of a DNA test. But it was really widely reported that they got him. But he still, any possible sighting of him still makes kind of headline news in France, but it may never be solved, uh, his whereabouts. Thanks, Jen, for bringing us up to date for those really well-known cases in France. Now, we know that the latest French government moves haven't seemed all that welcoming to airlines. They've passed new laws restricting domestic flights in France and announced an increased tax on tickets, all part of the environmental strategy towards net zero, of course. But that doesn't seem to have put airlines off from France, right? Because we have some new routes to the country, do we not, Emma? 
Uh, we do, yeah. There's a few new routes starting in 2024. Firstly, the Spanish carrier, uh, Volatea. They've announced that they're adding West in Brittany uh, to the airports that it serves, bringing its total presence in France up to nine airports. They've confirmed flights to and from Brest for Athens, Barcelona, Faro and Palermo. But they say there'll actually be 13 new destinations with wow. the rest announced nearer to the summer. So better connections for Brittany there. There are also two new transatlantic routes. Air France is adding Raleigh Durham Airport, which is in North Carolina to its departures from Paris Charles de Gaulle. And there's a startup called Norse Atlantic Airways that's going to be offering a Paris to Los Angeles route, which is likely to bring a bit of price competition on that popular route. And finally, Transavia has added a link from Paris to the Estonian capital of Tallinn, and the Danish city of Aleborg is going to get a direct connection to Nice. Interesting, new flight connections. What about any train news, Emma? Any new international train routes? Uh, yeah, I mean, the big news for next year is a direct connection between Paris and Berlin. i got to say, I always assumed there mm. already was a direct connection to Paris and Berlin, but no, there is not. But on December 11th, a night train launches on the Paris-Berlin route, and then a direct high-speed day train will follow in October 2024. So I think Fantastic. we need a little holiday to Berlin coming up there. Mm. Uh, hopefully, next summer, the Paris-Milan direct route will open. Uh, you might remember that the track was badly damaged in a landslide back in the summer and the direct route has been closed ever since. Now you have to go via Switzerland, but it is scheduled to reopen in summer 2024, although there isn't a precise date for that. And you might have also heard that a second company is bidding to run trains on the Paris-London line, providing competition to Eurostar. This, i got to say, is in the very early stages yet. The earliest possible start date, assuming this bid is successful, is 2025, but most of the rail experts seem to think it'll actually be later than that. Mm, that'll be an interesting development. I was on the Eurostart on Sunday actually and the French went on strike would you believe it and they cancelled all the trains from London to Paris apart from my one Ah, you're under a lucky star. A little That's good. bit of luck for once, yeah. I mean, the, the Eurostar service, it is, it is a very good service, but it it's expensive and it's yeah. got more expensive since yeah. Brexit because they can't run as many trains. So yeah. I think people are looking forward to a bit of price competition, yeah. but it's not very certain that that will happen. They have released a whole load of cheaper tickets actually for next year. They're well worth checking out. I've just nabbed a few to go to London in the spring. Nice. 39 euros one way. You can, they're still on sale actually. You can get a few. If you're quick, thanks Emma for all those travel updates. Let's move on. Smoking is often synonymous with France, but the French government has taken steps in recent years to stamp out the habit. And it's announced yet more restrictions on smokers this week. Jen, tell us about them. Yeah, so on Tuesday, France's health minister announced a new nationwide anti-smoking plan. And this includes both raising the price of cigarettes and limiting the number of places that people can smoke. So since 2007, smoking has been banned in most indoor public spaces. So think schools, public transport, restaurants, cafes. You're also not allowed to smoke inside a car if there's a minor child that's present. And you're not allowed to smoke in kids' parks. But the rules have been a bit more lenient about public outdoor spaces. So that's why when you visit France, you might walk past a cloud of smoke from a bunch of smokers that are sitting outside a bar or a cafe. That's because smoking is still allowed on terrasse, uh, which are those outdoor patios. The new plan doesn't touch the terrace, but it is going to make it so that people cannot smoke on beaches, in forests, or in the areas right outside of schools. Okay, thanks. I think when we read this, we thought, okay, fair enough. 
uh, ban smoking on beaches, but how can you still allow them on these terraces, which most of them are kind of enclosed, aren't they, Emma? Well, yeah, so, yeah, sort of. The, the terraces have a bit of a funny status. So since the smoking ban in 2007, smoking is banned inside, but it exempted the terraces because they're outdoor spaces. But since then, like a lot of cafes and bars have added these kind of temporary walls and roofs to their terraces. So in the winter, they're really more like mm. enclosed rooms and they can get pretty smoky. Yeah. And actually, I think that's why visitors tend to get to the impression that more people smoke in France than they really do. It's just that all the smokers are gathered on terraces. So right. when you're walking down the street, you get a waft of cigarette smoke. If you're going into a cafe, you have to go through it. Um, it's no good for non-smokers who want to sit on the terrace. It's not, especially in the winter. I mean, mm. in summer, they're, they're not more bad, open, yeah. but in the winter, yeah. One thing that might affect this, actually, especially in the winter, is there is a ban on heaters on cafe terraces. Mm. This came into force last year because of the environmental impact of the heaters, and that might make terraces a bit less attractive to smokers if they enforce it. i got to say, I still see a lot of these, so I'm not sure quite mm. how strictly they're enforcing that. But maybe. Fair enough. Now, going back to beaches, now some beaches, perhaps in the France, can feel as packed as cafe terraces, uh, Jen, but some of them actually already ban smoking. Is that right? Yeah, so France actually has over 7,000 smoke-free zones already, and that's thanks to local ordinances. So if you go to a beach, you might see a no tobacco sign, and you You'll probably also see that in front of schools, like, you know, the pick up and drop off points. And then actually a lot of forests have banned smoking as well due to forest fire risks. The main thing is that this anti-smoking plan is going to standardize the rules about smoking outdoors. So it's not just up to those local authorities anymore. And then the other step is that they want to hit at people's pocketbooks. So the price of a packet of 20 cigarettes is going to rise to 12 euro in 2025 and then up to 13 euro in 2026. And in comparison, right now, the average price for a pack is 10.50. And in 2000, it was just 3.20. So it has been coming up. Now, these gradual price increases have been thanks to higher taxes on tobacco products. The French government has been trying to cut down on smoking for a long time. Has it worked, Jen? I mean, how many people actually smoke in France these days? Well, in 2016, the number of daily smokers in France was 30%, and that has dropped down to 25%, so it's, it's decreased. But unfortunately, since the pandemic, that number has sort of stagnated. In comparison to the EU average of 18.4%, France definitely has a lot more consistent smokers. But it would be unfair to call France the chimney of Europe. That title actually goes to Bulgaria, where 28.2% of people are smokers. And then after that, Greece and Hungary both smoke more than France. So Greece has 27.2%. Hungary has 25.8% of people that are smoking regularly. Okay, just going back to some of these rules you pointed out, Jen, how does France compare to other European countries when it comes to where you can and can't smoke? Well, Italy is pretty similar. So no smoking is allowed in closed indoor spaces like bars and restaurants. But in January, actually, the Italian government said they wanted to ban smoking in open air spaces in the presence of minors and pregnant women. In terms of general public areas that are outdoor, it really depends on local rules. So, for example, Milan bans people from smoking at bus stops and in parks. And it's not too different in Spain either. The government did propose a ban on smoking on outdoor terraces, but it has not gone into effect. Smoking indoors is not allowed in Spain, and some bars and restaurants have their own rules about whether or not you can smoke on the outdoor patio. Germany is the outlier, though, because the rules depend on the state. So in Bavaria, North Rhine-Westphalia and Saarland, you can't smoke in pubs and restaurants. But in other states, even though there might be regulations, it can be more relaxed uh, and it really depends on enforcement. So it is possible to smoke in some restaurants, bars, clubs and other spaces. And you might see this in Berlin, for example. Mm, Really interesting comparison. Thanks, Jen, for that update in France's battle to stamp out smoking. 
Now, one of the most difficult things I always find about life in France is giving out my phone number or trying to understand someone else's phone number when I'm taking it down. That is because of these crazy French numbers that I don't understand still. Emma, where did this crazy French number system come from? Tell us, um, tell everyone what I'm talking about. Okay, yeah, it is pretty crazy. So um, I pulled out one example, which is that if you want to tell someone that unleaded petrol is now 197 a litre in France, what you actually say is, le son pomme 95 est 1,97€. Yikes. And that translates literally to the unleaded 420s 15 is 1 euro and 420s 17 cents. Mm. For example, also, I live in uh, département number 420s 13 otherwise known as 93. And Ben, you're in 6015, which mm. is otherwise known as 75 or Paris. And oh. I think most French learners will already know this, but basically French numbers are perfectly logical until you get to 69. And after that, they go a little bit crazy, basically because there is no word for 70, 80 or 90. Instead, you say 6010, 70, for 70. You say 420s, 80, for 80. And you say 420s, 10, 90, for 90. And if you have a number with a 10, then it goes on to 11, 12, et cetera. So 72 would be 60, 12. Mm, it just feels mad, Emma, the way you put it like that. And especially considering that other Francophone countries like Switzerland and Belgium have kind of solved this entire problem by making up words for 70, 80 and 90. Do you know what they are? 70 is? Uh, 70. 70. 80. Octant. Oui, tante. Oh, okay. 90. Non ante. Non ante. Yeah, I mean, this, this is very logical. It, it would be, seems very logical. It would logical. be much easier if we could have Credit this in France. Credit to France. the Swiss uh, f for coming up with those with those new numbers. But where does the French system come from? Well, it's very old. Uh, in fact, it's possibly Celtic. And it comes down to what is called the vestigial system, which is basically counting in base 20. And it's theorised that this came about because if you count on all your fingers and all your toes, you get to 20. But like I said, this is very old. It was superseded by the Roman system of counting in base 10, which is what most countries use today. You get to 10 and then you start again. Exactly how France ended up counting in mostly base 10 from 0 to 60... And then having a kind of half base 20 system and then going back to base 10 once you get to 100. No one's really very sure of that. There are lots of theories, as you can imagine. It does kind of seem like the more logical way of saying numbers was catching on in the Middle Ages. But then for some reason, France reverted back to the old way of saying 70, 80, 90, and it's stuck ever since. But in fact, French is not the only language that includes remnants of base 20. Danish, for example, they use three twenties, three and a half twenties, four twenties and four and a half twenties when they're talking about 60, 70, 80, 90. And actually, we do it in English too, or at least we do it in old-fashioned English. So in Old English, a score means 20. So think Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth, blah, blah, blah. Four score and seven, that means 87. And it's the same uh, if you think of Shakespeare's four score years and 10, that's 90 in exactly the same way as you would say it in French, four twenties and 10. Okay, but look, we've English has moved on since Shakespeare and Lincoln. We've been banging on about this enough. Is there any chance of France changing these numbers? Well, the thing is, French people don't find it confusing. This is how they learn numbers from childhood. So to them, this is perfectly logical. The only people who really struggle with it are foreigners who are learning French. And they've not shown much indication so far that they want to make their language simpler for people like us. So I wouldn't hold your breath about that. All right, let's imagine they did accept some changes to the French language. Yeah, the, what do you call them, the sage at the Académie Française? Are they the sage? No, they're the immortals. The immortals, sorry. yeah. Let's immortals. say, let's change a few things in the French language. What would your request be? Bonsoir, bonjour. Uh, bonsoir, bonjour, yes, is very confusing. Not because the words themselves are confusing, but like no one can tell you 
when it stops being bonjour daytime and when it goes to bonsoir mm. evening. And yeah. this is kind of like my, this is my conversation icebreaker. If I'm meeting new French people and I don't really know what to say, I'm always like, help, I'm a foreigner, explain this to me. And I have never once had the same explanation. Every single person has told me a different system of when you know when it stopped being bonjour and starts being bonsoir. You know you cheat for that? Just say salut. <laughs> it's very casual, salut, though. It's too casual, yeah. Okay, all right, Emma, um, accepted. Yeah, Jen, have you got any complaints you want? Oh, I was going to say for bonjour, bonsoir, I just say bonsoir when it's dark out, but that doesn't really work in the winter. And yesterday when I was leaving for work and it was dark out, the cleaning lady for the building was walking by and I was like, oh, bonsoir, <laughs> at like seven in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you need to work, re- rework that one, Jen. Anything else we changed? Le la, surely that can go. Masculine, feminine for like table. Like there's more things in life to worry about than the sex of a table these days. It, it would be, it would be nice. I would at least slim down the tenses. There is no need to have so many tenses in France. Like you just need one present, one future, mm. one past. That's it. And you don't need whatever that nonsense tense is called that they only use for writing novels. This is just an indulgence. Mm. Get rid of it, France. Listeners can appreciate how hard we <laughs> find learning French. To and vu can go as well, no? Surely just one, I quite like to enough. and vu, actually. I like a bit of the formality in the language. Uh, and the one thing I really do like, actually, is all of the greetings, you know, like every time in a day, you're like, bonjour, bonjour, bonsoir, bonsoir. I think it's a nice rhythm on your your day-to-day life. So French can keep that one. Fair enough. Well, look, I think we need to spell out these changes and write this letter to the French government or to the Académie Française, spelling out exactly what we want changed. That's a great idea. Actually, we should get listeners of this podcast to tell us what they want changing as well. We're going to put together a massive petition and we're going to send it to the government. And obviously they'll ignore it. Yes. Speaking of feedback from listeners, before we go, we'll just encourage you to, uh, and thank all of those who filled in our questionnaire. Uh, We're going to post it again in the podcast notes and in the article. Remember to send us any question about France you'd like, uh, and we'll try to answer them in a special episode over Christmas to Emma, Jen, or John. And you can also give us some feedback about the podcast. Uh, We appreciate it very much. The latest feedback is pretty positive for you two, at least. It says, you all sound so well informed, apart from Ben. (laughs) Someone is very, very intelligent listeners out there. Anyway, thanks for all the feedback. Uh, It's much appreciated. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. We'll be back with more next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.